Philippians 1. And if you are visiting with us, we've uh, just started a, a new series. This is our second week in. Uh, what a rich blessing is ahead of us as we get to grips with this book. This is the word of the living God. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. There we end our reading, and we thank him for this, uh, his word. If you have a Bible, then please do open up the Philippians. We're going to be working our, through, our way through those um, verses that Alistair read for us. And tonight we're really looking at verses 7 through to 11, but there's a bit of overlap with uh, the verses that we looked at last week, from especially verses 3 to 6, just to kind of help us uh, piece it all together. And tonight we're really going to be thinking about how, what, and why we should pray for others. Let me pray and ask God to help us this evening. Father, thank you for your word, and we pray that we would hear and that we would keep your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder, do you happen to have a prayer diary? Uh, a prayer diary can be a really helpful thing, um, uh, just a, a way of bringing to mind those whom you are committed to or should be committed to praying for. So it might be your family members, it might be uh, friends, it might be work colleagues, it could be neighbors, uh, missionaries, those whom you think, uh, these are people uh, uh, that I am connected with that I need to be praying for. And so a prayer diary just kind of allows you to split it up over the week so that you're praying for them. Boys and girls, this might be a really helpful thing for you to do. Come up with a prayer diary. Maybe ask your mum or your dad to help you. Come up with a, a list of the different days of the week and think about who could, you could be praying for uh, each, each night. Kind of helps us from just uh, going into the same prayer again and again and again, doesn't it? That's helpful. Because it's one thing to know who to pray for, but then it's another thing to know how to pray, what to pray, and even to be reminded why why to pray for them in the first place. And tonight, as we delve into this little next chunk of the letter to the Philippians, Paul gives us an insight into how he prays, what he prays, and why he prays. How he prays, what he prays, 
and why he prays as he's praying for this group of, of saints, this church family in Philippi. So how does he pray? How does Paul pray? Well, Paul comes to pray for these brothers and sisters in Christ, and he comes to God in thankfulness, doesn't he? We saw that last week in uh, verse 3. And the reason that he thanks God is that he realizes that the partnership that he's enjoyed and experienced with, with this uh, church family is a work of God. That's how it's came about. It is a work of God. God had saved them. God was the one who was sanctifying them. He was the one who was going to glorify them. Uh, and as Alistair really helpfully highlighted last week in verse 6, it's really a, a little glimpse of justification, sanctification, and glorification. That's really what's going on there. And all of these are things that God does. God is the one who brings each of them about. It's God's work. And that's why it's only right that it's to God that Paul comes to give thanks. It's to God that Paul comes to give thanks. Why? Because it is a work of God. It's a work of God. And so he is giving thanks to God for this congregation. And you'll remember last week that we picked up on how he prays with joy. He prays with joy for the congregation. We've already been singing about that this evening, haven't we? And we saw that at the end of verse 4. And the reason that he prayed with joy is because of their partnership, their partnership with him over the years. It's not just a, a friendship, not just a friendship, that kind of partnership. No, this is a, a gospel partnership, a gospel partnership. They have been actively supporting him in ministry. That's what's been happening, active uh, gospel support. And in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, Paul talks about the, the churches in, in Macedonia, of which this, uh, this church in, in Philippi it was one. And this is what he says. He says they give beyond their means. They give beyond their means. What a wonderful, wonderful sign of the grace of God at work, changing their hearts. Here's this church family, and they give beyond their means. Incredibly generous, weren't they? Beyond their means. I wonder in your giving, in my giving, could that ever be said of us? They gave beyond their means. As a church family here in Rich Hill, I wonder would people say, yes, they give beyond their means. The grace of God at work in their life was so obvious. Just look at the level of giving. Look at the level of giving. Well, Paul considers this gospel partnership that he has experienced with this church family, and it leads him, it leads him to pray. <laughs> with thanksgiving and with joy for them. Now, one of the things that uh, I've really loved about coming to, to Rich Hill over the last couple of years has, has been really getting to know your particular mission interests. And if you've been coming here for any length of time, well, then you'll have heard us talk about uh, Manuel and Alba and the church in Almanekar. You'll have heard of us uh, talk about Sasko and Anya uh, in Poland. You'll have heard us talk about Trevor and Andrea in Sweden. And if you've been coming over the last couple of years, you'll have got to meet them because they've all been here. And so a big chunk of our missional giving goes to, it goes to these three gospel projects and these people. And we get to know them. We get to build up that relationship with them. And there's great joy in seeing the, the gospel go forth, the good news of Jesus go forth as we partner with them. And maybe as, as you pray at home, you've got others Others whom you support, maybe missionaries that you know, you're connected with, not just through this church, but, but through other connections, and you pray for them regularly, you get to know them, you get personal updates, you're invested heavily in the, heavily in the work, and so there's great joy, great joy when you think 
about the gospel ministry that you are partnered in the, uh, with them in. Last year, not this summer, but the summer before, I had the privilege of uh, heading as part of the, the church team to uh, Almanekar in Spain. And there was something about being there on the ground, getting to, to see Manuel and Alba on the ground in Almanekar that really forges that sense of togetherness, forges that sense of gospel partnership. And, and hearing those coming back this, uh, this summer and talking afresh about their time in Almanekar, it was really special. And it reminds us that we have this, this special partnership this gospel partnership. And so it is when we, when we pray for missionaries that we've built up this, this connection with, there is a sense in which we feel that joy building up within us, just like Paul is experiencing here. Paul, as he prays, he prays to God with thanksgiving and with joy, with joy for the consistent partnership in the gospel that he has enjoyed with uh, this church family. And it's surely our hope it's surely our hope that whenever our mission partners think of us, that this might be their response, that they might pray with thanksgiving, that may, they might pray with joy, thankful for our partnership in the gospel. That's how Paul prays, isn't it? That's how we want our mission partners to pray. But it's surely also how we want to pray for each other. As we think about the, the gospel partnership that we have together as a body, isn't this surely how we should pray for each other? With thanksgiving for each other and with joy, thinking of each other and, and the gospel partnership that we're involved in. As we seek as a church to, to make disciples and grow disciples, isn't that a wonderful gospel partnership? And so I wonder, do you pray with thanksgiving for those in the pew who sit beside you? For those here in the row in front, for those here in the row behind, do you pray for them? Do you thank God for them? Is there a sense of joy as you think about this gospel partnership that we're engaged in together as we seek to make and grow disciples? Well, Paul, he prays with thanksgiving and joy, and he, he gives thanks to God, knowing that it is God is the one who is bringing about these gospel efforts, and it's through God that this gospel partnership has been established. And Paul says in verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and then the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You see, for Paul, he is sure that God is at work in this church family. As he writes this letter to the Philippians, he is sure that God is at work. He knows that God is not a builder who abandons the site halfway through. No, he doesn't abandon his project and leave it to move on to another. No, this is a builder who will see his work through to completion. And Paul knows that God has started his work. How does Paul know? How does Paul know that God has started his work in these people? Well, he knows because he has seen it with his own eyes. That's how he knows. He spotted it with his own eyes. There's visible evidence that God is at work. Think about how this church came about in the first place. We read about it in chapter 16 of Acts. You might want to flick there just to kind of to see it. Uh, chapter 16 of, of Acts. And if you glance down, you'll, you'll see what's happening because perhaps you know some of the stories here. Uh, perhaps you know the story of the conversion of, of Lydia, one of the, the women who came to pray outside the city. 
Maybe you know the story of the fortune-telling slave girl and her conversion. Glance down further, you see the Philippian jailer, and you think, yes, I've heard that story, maybe. The Philippian jailer and his coming to save in faith. But look at what happens even before that. Even before that. Listen to these verses from verse 6 through to 13 of Acts chapter 16. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they'd come to Messiah, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Messiah, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, the following day to Neopolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained in this city some days. You see, even before those whom he thinks of in the church came to faith, Paul had experienced God at work, hadn't he? Preventing him from going into one place and leading and directing him to another place. In this case, he was, he was led to Philippi. And in that, Paul had recognized that God was the one who was at work. And it's interesting to look back and see God's hand at work directing and, and, and marking out a path, even in our own lives, isn't it? Here you are this evening, sitting in Rich Hill in this church. I wonder how you ended up here. I wonder if you were making the plans, is this where you would have ended up? Perhaps not. Possibly not. Probably not. And yet here you are. Here you are, and God has brought you to this point as he's closed doors and opened doors, as he has directed his hand at work behind the scenes. And Paul had known that very thing, hadn't he? That's what Paul had known. Paul had known that God had guided him to Philippi, and there he got to share the gospel and to see Lydia and the slave girl and the jailer all come to faith. He got to see them baptized, and where they had families, to see their families baptized as well. And for this church family to kind of begin to take shape, to begin to be formed, it was very much a a work of God, wasn't it? A work of God. And the God who starts a project, what will he do? He will finish his project. We can be sure of that. Paul knows that. And it wasn't just their conversion that Paul thinks of. No, this is a, a church family who have been supporting Paul's ministry ever since. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You see, this church had supported Paul's ministry even when things got tough, even when things looked like they'd gone belly up, Paul finds himself in prison. Now, he does find himself in prison for a good reason. But maybe at this point, many churches would say, well, do you know what? This is the time where we need to find another missionary partnership. Perhaps a missionary who can actually do the job, one who's not in chains. Maybe they would think to themselves, this may not be good for our reputation being connected with Paul as he is in prison. And yet, not here. What do they do? They continue their support. Their support is unwavering. And Paul thinks of that and he thinks, 
God is at work. And the God who begins a work continues a work, and he also completes a work. And so here Paul writes from prison, and Paul prays with assurance, knowing that God will do that very thing. He will complete his work in his people. And so he thinks ever so fondly of this church in Philippi. Perhaps for the church congregation, as they look around and they, they see this converted jailer in their congregation, perhaps it reminds them, it reminds them of God's strategic plan in having Paul in prison in the first place. And perhaps for Paul, as he brings to mind the congregation, perhaps he, he remembers preaching to them and, and looking out and he can, he can see the, 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 the jailer sitting in the congregation. Wouldn't that be a great reminder to him? God knows what he's doing. I can trust him. I can trust him. And so Paul prays to God with thanksgiving and with joy and with assurance that God will complete his work. But he also prays with deep affection. Did you spot that? With deep, deep affection. We see that in verse 8. It says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Look at this, I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. That word affection here, it's really this idea of your inner organs. It's really, really saying I have deep, deep heartfelt affection for you. It moves me to the very core of my being when I think of you. Sigler Ferguson notes this, he says, it moves Paul so much to the point where he swears. You spot that? For God is my witness. For God is my witness. It's as if someone wheels out the the Bible and he places his hand upon it, swearing an oath. He has this deep, deep, deep affection for the congregation, so much so that he appeals to God as his testimony. I wonder as you pray for this church family, if this is your church family, if if this is home for you, if you're part of it, when you pray, Are you moved to that level of affection? That level of affection where you can feel it within your very stomach. I wonder as you think about the gospel partnerships you have, the the missionaries that you support, those whom you're praying for, the other church families that we're thinking about as we pray through our prayer diaries. I wonder are we moved with that level of affection? And as I've thought about it this week, I'm going to be honest, that was a real challenge. When I come to pray for you, when I come to pray for my previous congregations I've been in, when I pray, pray for the, the missionaries that we support here as a church, am I moved to that level of affection? Does it move my very core of my being? Whenever I read the name in the prayer diary, is it purely just up here? Or is there a real sense of love and care and affection for those people? Well, these verses give us some insight into how Paul prays for the saints in Philippi. But now I want us to see what he prays. What does he actually pray for them? Notice that he prays that their love will increase. We see that in verse 9, don't we? And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. More and more, that's his prayer. And what a prayer. Paul wants their love to increase. Now, remember, what do we know about this church family? We know that this is the church family who's been faithful to him through it all so far. They've been supporting his ministry through it all so far. What have we read about them in Corinthians? They've given beyond their means. 
And Paul's prayer is that their love would increase even more, even more. Paul wants the Philippians to grow. He doesn't want them to grow stagnant. No, he longs for growth in love. Then maybe if this church had been getting a, an audit, if they got someone on the outside to come in and say, give us a bit of an audit, they might have looked around and said, Paul, you've been supporting this guy for a long time. Maybe an idea to change it up. You've been giving beyond your means for, for way too long now. Maybe let's pull it back a bit, rein it in a bit. What does Paul say? Does Paul say, let's just chill out, pull it back, calm your jets? No, Paul says, increase in love. Increase in love. So that you might give more and more. Because love here that he's talking about isn't just sending heart emojis to someone, although that might be a really nice thing to do. No, this love has legs, doesn't it? It's the kind of love that sees the need and it seeks to meet the need uh, where it can. And that's how we need to understand the next part of this verse, because it says, with knowledge and all discernment. And you see, knowledge and all discernment here in this verse, um, one writer puts it, they are servants of love. Look at how they come after uh, love. It's not that Paul is saying that his prayer is that they would love more and more, and then moving to a separate thing, that they would increase in knowledge and discernment. No, the knowledge and discernment are very much servants to love. It's it's that through this increasing knowledge and discernment, they would be able to love more. The knowledge and discernment are servants of love. We're able to love better because of our discernment and knowledge. That's what he's really saying. Because we have eyes to see the need. We can see the need clearer. We have discernment as to how best to meet the need and how to act. And so we're able to love more and more. How do we know how to love others well? That's a good question, isn't it? How do we actually know how to go about loving others? Well, we need knowledge from God. We need wisdom from the Spirit, enabling us to be shaped by God's Word, transformed to be more and more Christ-like. And so in a sense, it's really our increasing love for God, getting to know God better through His Word, that enables us to truly love our neighbor. That's how we're going to know how to love our neighbor, because if we just seek to love them in the way that the world says to love your neighbor, well, then the very things that we might do could be the very opposite of loving. They could be the very opposite of loving. No, love, true love, is shaped by God and knowledge of God and knowledge from God. So how's your love? Is it growing? Is it growing? Is it abounding more and more? What about your giving? Is it increasing? Because that's certainly one of the ways that the Philippian church showed their love towards Paul, wasn't it? Giving beyond their means and supporting the gospel ministry. I heard uh, someone this week talk about a a friend of theirs who, when they got married, had made this commitment that they would increase their percentage of their giving year on year. And at this point, they'd been married for quite some time, and so they were currently giving around 30% of all of their income to God's work. And so he said, on hearing this, this was a great challenge because he knew that the person was the same age as him. He knew that they were in a very similar salary to him. And so he said he went home and he had to start looking at his own giving, thinking, okay, I need to up my game. I need to up my game. Well, if our love for God's people grows and grows, well, isn't it natural that our giving would increase and increase year on year? It's a wonderful example, isn't it, of 
increasing love for God and love for others. This love abounding more and more. Look with me at verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. You see, Paul wants us to grow in love, doesn't he? Love that is shaped by knowledge and discernment so that we might become more and more judges of what is excellent to do. What is excellent to do? I've got a, you know, I'm sure many of you have productivity books, okay? Well, one of the, the books that I've got is called What's Best Next? What's Best Next? And it's really helpful, even if you never actually get around to reading the books. That happens many of the books on my shelf, but even if you didn't read it, it is a good read, though. It's a really helpful read. It's gospel-focused. But even remembering the title, What's Best Next, is really helpful, isn't it? Because there are so many good things to do. My job as an assistant minister is endless lists of, of things that you could be doing, and yet there's limited time, isn't there? And so you cannot do everything. You have to think, well, what's best next? And my use is no different than yours, because you've got an endless list of good things that you could be doing, but you've got limits, haven't you? Boundaries which God has set in place, good boundaries, uh, different responsibilities, and you have to balance things up, and you have to figure out what's best next. What's best next? And I think that's what Paul is wanting us to see here, to focus on what is excellent. He wants the saints to know what is best next, to know what to do with increased clarity because of their growing love for God, their growing love for their fellow believers, and their growing love for their neighbor. Instead of clarity, this is what I should do. This is what is best next. Well, then, uh, thirdly, why? Why would Paul pray these prayers? And sometimes we need that, don't we? You know, you might have the prayer diary, you might turn to it every night, and you might be praying your way through, and sometimes you might need to be reminded, why is it I do this again? Why is it that I'm praying? Well, what's Paul's reason that he gives? So that these saints will be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. See, it's good to remember, isn't it? One day Jesus is coming back. That's what's going to happen. One day Jesus is coming back. That The day of Christ is coming. And Paul wants them to be as sanctified as possible. That's his goal, isn't it? He's praying that they will be pure and blameless. Because with their love shaped by knowledge and discernment, they will know how to live in such a way that pleases God. If you love God, you will obey his commandments. And he also wants their lives to be lived with integrity, doesn't he? He wants what they proclaim with their lips to be matched with their living. He wants their lives to be lived with moral purity so that they are blameless with regards to causing others to stumble. And then look at verse 11. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What a wonderful thing to pray for. It's as if Paul is saying here, Christ is, Christ is going to return. One day you're going to meet him face to face. And when that happens, I want you to come to Christ with a, with a great big bumper harvest. That's what I want you to come to Christ with. A great big bumper harvest. I, I grew up on a farm and um, I used to work for an agricultural contractor. One of the, the joys of my youth, bouncing along in the tractors. I love that. Uh, but when it came to, to the crop, and you look at the crop, 
The crop determined how many trailer loads came off. If there was a good crop, a big heavy crop, lots of trailer loads came off. Small crop, a lot less trailers. Now, I was getting paid by, by the R, okay, and so what I wanted to see was big crops. Big crops meant lots of trailer loads having to come in off the, off the fields, and that meant that I got paid more. I was looking for a bumper harvest every single year. Heavier crop, the better. And so picture the scene as the New Holland 8340 comes in with a, with a 14 fun, uh, ton uh, trailer on the back. Now, the New Holland's a blue one for those who maybe aren't entirely sure. And there's a bumper harvest, the, the, the trailer spilling over with all of the harvest in it. That's what I was wanting. That's what the farmer was wanting. And isn't it what Paul longs for, for those that he is praying for? He wants them to come in home with a bumper harvest. A bumper harvest. A harvest that is filled, a trailer that is filled to the brim. That's what Paul longs for. He's been praying that they will get great rewards for the fruit of righteousness in their lives. He longs for a bumper crop. And isn't that also what we long for ourselves? Don't we want to get to that day when Christ returns, the day that is surely coming, and for Christ to say, well done, good and faithful servant. We long that in our trailer we will have a bumper harvest, a harvest of righteousness filled to the brim. Well done, good and faithful servant. And it's not for our glory. It's not for our glory. Paul himself makes that clear, doesn't he? He says that the works themselves come through Christ Jesus. They come through Christ Jesus. We can't do them in our own strength. But also, he says that they are to the glory and praise of God. They're to the glory and praise of God. What is man's chief end? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that's what we're to be about. And so we should seek to pray in a similar vein to Paul, shouldn't we? We should seek to pray in a similar vein to Paul. And so these verses really help us. They show us, they model to us how to pray. They show us what we should be praying for each other and for the other saints. And they also remind us why we're praying in the first place. Let's do it now as we come to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Lord, I pray for these saints here this evening. Might their love abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that they may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness, filled to the brim that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of Christ Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.